Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance, and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 19 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, June the 10th. First, I'll be talking to the founder of non-alcoholic beer brewer Heaps Normal, Peter Brennan. Heaps Normal took out the Embracing Innovation and Outstanding Growth categories at the Telstra Business Awards in February. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about the election of the Albanese government. But now let's talk to Peter Brennan. Peter, tell us about Heaps Normal. Yeah, um, Heaps Normal is a non-alcoholic beer company. Uh, we say we make great tasting beer without the hangover. It started by four mates. And yeah, we all had our own reason for wanting to cut down our alcohol consumption and started in the middle of COVID nearly two years ago now. And yeah, currently in about 4,000 venues around the country. We're on shelf in New Zealand and Singapore and Malaysia. And yeah, it's, it's kind of growing uh, every week. So yeah, we're super excited and having a good time. So non-alcoholic beer, so what goes into it? Um, exactly the same ingredients as normal beer, believe it or not. Pretty much the same process. We've th- There's a few ways to make non-alcoholic beer. Well, two main ways. One is reverse osmosis and one is a kind of a vacuum distillation. And uh, we don't use either of those methods. We What we've done is used a very specific yeast that micro ferments to just under 0.5% alcohol. Anything under 0.5% alcohol is classified as non-alcoholic. So kombucha can have up to 0.5% alcohol. Ripe banana that's been on the shelf for a while. Glass of orange juice that's been in the fridge for a week. Even, even a loaf of bread that's been on the shelf for a few days can naturally ferment up to 0.5% alcohol. So what, what that means is we don't have to take anything out of the beer at the end of the process. We leave everything in. So we've managed to make a, a, a beer that's you know full flavored. It fools a lot of very experienced sommeliers thinking at four or five percent alcohol and when they try it we tell them it's non-alcoholic you just see jaws hitting the floor and they can't quite believe it and yeah we're really excited about it so what led you to this why non-alcoholic beer yeah a few reasons i think for me on a very personal level i lost my dad to suicide when i was 11 he was a very abusive alcoholic that i kind of grew up in the shadow of that subsequently in my kind of 20s and 30s i never had a good relationship with alcohol myself i was always the guy who would be the life of the party, but wake up with a banging headache and vague recollections of how I got home. And, you know, I'm, I'm 41 now. I've got three young children, very happily married. And, you know, a few years ago, I just kind of realized, well, I kind of don't like doing this. I don't like waking up with that fear and realized 
I was probably what you would call a problem drinker. And uh, it was really scratching an own itch, really. I was sick of going out and either drinking a soft drink and pretending I had an ear infection and that I was on antibiotics. Friends are starting to think I was there was something really wrong with me for after having antibiotics for about six months in a row. Or I would have a beer or a glass of wine and pray I could kind of keep it under control. And sometimes I wouldn't be able to and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd behave like an idiot and just hate myself the next morning. So yeah, I mean, that was probably the driving force behind it. At the same time, I run a branding studio as well. So we, we'd, uh, we'd done a, we were about two or three years in and had a little bit of imposter syndrome around creating a brand. Could we, could we create a brand on our own without any client validation and any client input? So yeah, it was kind of a, a pet project side hustle for, for about 18 months. And we got it to a point where I thought there was really something in it. So I, I shopped the idea around to a few breweries in Sydney. And yeah, fair to say I was politely laughed out of the room. Who, who would buy non-alcoholic beer? Um, it's not really what we do. And finally, a wonderful man named Andy Miller, who I'd done some work with. I kind of pitched the idea to him and he just got it straight away. He just understood and said he's in. Uh, we pulled in Benny Holdstock, who's another co-founder and our head of products and our head brewer. And then I have a childhood friend named Geordie Smith, who's a pro surfer that we uh, we knew was off the booze as well. So we pulled him in too, and the four of us incorporated just under two years ago now. Okay, so, and what's the reception been? Yeah, it's been, it's been incredible, really. Like, you know, in the early days, we were laughed out of a lot of pubs. We had one publican in Melbourne in particular, who we, we went in and we, we poured him a glass of beer and of, of our beer, and he, he had a sip and said, that's delicious. And during the second sip, we mentioned it's non-alcoholic and he spat it out on the floor and told us to get out. And uh, so there's definitely a, been a, a kind of a, mind, a mindset shift that we've had to work through. But like I said, we're, you know, we're nearly two years in now. We're in over 4,000 venues around the country. The response has been, has been pretty incredible. We realized a little while in that there's other people out there who were reassessing their relationship with alcohol and wanted to cut down whether it was taking a few nights off during the week or taking a month off or, or going completely sober. And I think, you know, there's a few reasons why people have really got behind what we're doing. One is the, the product that Benny's created is, is impeccable and uh, you, you'd be, you'd be hard pressed to mistake it for, uh, for uh, another normal beer. And then I think from a branding point of view as well, you know, we've, we've taken a pretty considered approach. We, we don't preach sobriety. We don't say alcohol's the devil. Don't drink. We just say, hey, if you're if you're having the night off or a month off, or you're driving this evening, or you know you, you just want to kind of mix it up and do something that's meaningful to you in the morning and not wake up with a hangover, then here's an option for you. And I think people have really got behind, you know, that that tone of voice, and they try the product and they're quite pleasantly surprised. And then you know we get we get a message a week later saying I had six of your beers last night and I got up and went for a surf or I was clear headed for a meeting in the morning or I played with my kids and I wasn't ratty and irritable and hungover. So it's definitely uh, people are certainly getting behind what we're doing. I, I wonder actually whether COVID had an impact on it too, because people have become much more health conscious during COVID. Yeah, massively. I think the first lockdown, everyone went to the bottle shop and stocked up and said, right, we're in this for a while. We're going to drink through it. And then the second lockdown, people went, we can't do that again. And we were just kind of poised to be there for that luck or serendipity or timing, whatever you like to call it. But I think, you know, as heartbreaking as to say COVID worked in our favor, I think it did a little bit, which is which is interesting. But I think there's also more of a, a kind of global wellness movement at the moment where people are just being a lot more conscious of what they're putting into their body. You know, like I've, I've spent some time in the US and in Japan and the youth over there are a lot more 
focused on not drinking alcohol because they want to, you know, have a six pack on Instagram and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, I, I missed that time. Unfortunately, I've got a dad bod to prove it, but I think that the youth are definitely being a lot more conscious of what they consume these days. Okay. Yes. Yes. Do you have a particular demographic for Hipster? You know, we've actually gone against the grain with that. We don't really define what we do in demographics we say we make beer for people who really enjoy a beer but want to cut down and then we kind of play in three pillars and we call those athletes artists and entrepreneurs and it's very much in the in the tone of voice of nike saying anybody with a body is an, is an athlete so and that's been really interesting you know we've had some incredible stories from all over the spectrum really like pregnant women i had no idea pregnant women enjoy non-alc beer as much as they do we've had we get you know weekly messages from from women who are six months pregnant and can still go to the pub on a Saturday with their friends and enjoy a drink. We've, we've had, we had a, a report of a, a, an elderly man in Canberra who was told that he couldn't drink alcohol anymore. The doctor said he's going to die if he carries on drinking. And for him, it was kind of, it was a game changer for him because, you know, he had four mates and his, their wives had passed away and they go down the pub every day and drink beer and, you know, talk nonsense to each other. And then they go home and feed their dogs and watch TV and have dinner and go to bed. And he couldn't do that anymore. So he, one of our customers in Canberra sold him a four pack and he came back the next day and bought a case. And then his mates came and bought a case and then the pub that they go to are now a customer of ours. So, you know, so on the kind of elder side of things, it's, it's been really awesome to hear those stories. And then we had another report of a, a bottle shop down here where I live in Manly called uh, Winona, which is a good customer of ours. And, you know, they said, pretty early on as well they had kind of four young guys come in early 20s they were kind of skimming the fridge for what beer to choose they all grabbed a four pack of heaps normal and uh, you know the lady behind the counter said oh they must have fallen for the branding so she felt it was her duty to call that out so she just said hey boys just to let you know that's non-alcoholic beer and they all went yeah we know we're, we're landscape gardeners we've got to go to a house party tonight we want to get up and go for a surf before work in the morning so it's really kind of breaking down barriers across gender and you know age and all sorts of other demographics that we're just so pleasantly surprised about i'm wondering now where you can take it I mean, do you plan to take it overseas yeah, we're already on, like I said, on shelf in, in New Zealand and Singapore and Hong Kong. We're chatting to some other distributors further abroad as well. But yeah, we've still got some work to do in Australia. I think it's been it's been great to get the amazing feedback we've got. We were told by, you know, online retailers like Beer Cartel and even from, you know, a number of bottle shops and restaurants that, you know, Heaps Normal is the best selling beer on their platform, even out selling normal beers, which is which is kind of mind blowing, really. But yeah, we've, we're absolutely um, taking this thing uh, further abroad as well. Well, it'd be fascinating to watch. Absolutely fascinating. And Peter, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. Thanks for having me. And now let's talk to economist Nicholas Groom. Okay, Nicholas Groom, you have some views about uh, John Howard and Bob Hawke, which and would... their relevance and their relevance to today, which is that I, I guess I in some well, it's not true. I came of age in Bob Hawke's time. I came of age as a kind of adult, I suppose, in late Whitlam time and Fraser. But Hawke was a, quite a phenomenon. And in fact, he came into power promising consensus and everyone said, Bob, you, you're full of it. Uh, you'll never make that work. And including my father, uh, economists were very suspicious that, or just sceptical that this could be made to work, to sort of work consensually with labour and capital and Hawke did do that through the Accord. And I thought he invented a way to govern Australia, not just from the centre, but in the centre and inviting people into the centre. 
as a uniter, as a builder, and as a persuader. And uh, that started to be destroyed uh, by uh, Paul Keating, who also governed from the centre in a way, but rhetorically was very confronting, very divisive. And then we got John Howard, and John Howard governed by dividing, uh, loved to wedge his opponents. And I think that that's very, da- I, I guess we can all object to it on moral grounds, but I actually think it's very damaging to the quality of your government. And I think all of this is relevant because of what Anthony Albanese says he wants to do, but also because the way the election turned out creates all kinds of opportunities for, uh, for, for this new way to govern or this old way to govern. Now, that, that's interesting. I mean, Bob Hawke's great achievements included globalising the Australian economy, exposing yep. it to global competition and uh, uh, putting the Australian dollar on the market, which was terrific. Both of which were Keating initiatives, but yeah, he he shepherded it through. That's right. That's right. And but John Howard, who was divisive, who wedged his uh, opponents, his great achievements were gun control and uh, also the GST, which he put in his second term. Correct. And so, but. Morrison government, I can't think of any of it, anything that they had had actually achieved in the nine in the nine years of LNP government. Yeah, well, they well the Mor the, the the Abbott Turnbull Morrison government did one big thing, and that was to perpetrate a piece of vandalism on the Australian public interest uh, of a magnitude similar to Brexit, uh, and that was to abolish carbon pricing. So they achieved something, and what they achieved was damaging. And and here, I think, is something that we really need to really ponder. It was damaging, and 80% of the parliamentarians who voted for it knew that it was damaging and didn't actually want to do it. In other words, they voted against their conscience. So the business of winning, the business of wedging, the business of opposing took over the idea that you might try and do what you think will be good for the country. Quite an extraordinary convolution, but that's where we, that's where we were going and that's, that's where we went and that's where we continued to go because I thought that once Tony Abbott had got into government, he would realise that he essentially needed to gradually unpick the abolition of carbon pricing, uh, because there was nothing else that made sense. This is interesting in light of the current election results, because the Teals, the independents, got a huge vote, and they were standing on the grounds of climate change. Correct. So that says to me, we have come a long way since 2013. Uh, Yeah. Go on. so, So the issue is, why doesn't Albanese then bring in carbon price? <laughs> well, if I was Albanese, I wouldn't bring it. I know that he won't. And if I was him, I wouldn't either. Because the electorate are so burned from lies. And I think there is, I, I know that the electorate, John Button once said to me, I worked for John Button many years ago, and he once said to me that uh, the one gratitude, <coughs> 
the one emotion that the electorate does not experience is gratitude. Uh, but, but I think to some extent, if you keep your promises in your first term, you stay out of trouble. So, so, so I think it would, I, I basically think that what the Albanese government plan to do is pretty much what they said. If they can find rel- if they can find ways to move faster on greenhouse that don't inflict much pain on people and enable them to cuddle up to the teals, they will. I don't think they want to do that with the greens for all kinds of historical reasons to do with the behaviour of the greens in the past and also just the look of it. And I'd just like to add there, I don't actually even blow, I'm not one of these people who says the Greens are responsible for Kevin Rudd's carbon pricing regime falling over. The game of politics is played by brinkmanship. And in hindsight, they were obviously wrong to do that. Uh, I don't think they were necessarily wrong in foresight. Uh, so, but but it is, it is uh, that is the other big sleeper, I think, in the new parliament is that the, the big question that we should be asking the Labor Party and the Greens is why can't they have a, an uncomfortable collaboration in the way that the Nationals and the Liberals have an uncomfortable collaboration rather than uh, basically regarding each other as mortal enemies. Um, that seems to me to be something that they need to put in their, uh, put in their intray and work on. Now, what's interesting is that the LNP lost 17 seats. So we're looking probably at a, the Albanese government being in for two terms. Yeah, I'm not, I'm never, I don't believe that. I've never believed this idea that if you have a big majority, obviously a bigger majority helps, but uh, but it's it's never struck me as a true thing. If we run into a recession, I think it's quite possible Albanese can lose in one term. Uh, Campbell Newman one in one, uh, lost in one term and had, I think, a very large majority. So I don't believe that stuff. Right, okay, okay. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but why did you go on with your question and maybe we can make something of it? Well, the, the, the question was, how, how could Albanese set up a Hawke-style second term? Yeah, good question. Well, you know, there's so much to be said about that. He, remember that the Teals are in a kind of position of perpetual mortal danger. Remember what happened to Rob, Rob Oakshock? They made a decision on their judgment. They judged that for their constituency and for the country, it was better to go with, uh, with uh, Gillard. And they knew they were taking their political life in their hands because they came from electorates that, where their main opponents were National Party. I believe that's right. Uh, certainly uh, uh, coalition uh, people. And so the Teals, if the Teals get themselves into a position where they're signing off on a Labor government and providing the balance of power for a Labor government, that's going to be very hard for them <laughs> sitting in, in in electorates like Kuyong and and Tony Abbott's old seat. I suspect that's quite, that's going to be quite hard for them. So the, the Labor Party's plan has to be to try and govern in a way that the teal candidates can say to their constituency they've helped the Labor government be a better government for them and their constituents uh, but I would but it's it starts to become 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm dicey if and when the Labor Party are depending on the, on the teals for, for government. Right, okay. But the question is, I mean, the, the Greens policy are pretty left of centre, yeah, which would alienate sections of the voting public. That's right. The Peels could yep. actually take the centrist ground, yep. like, Don, right. like Don Chip. Indeed. And where is the, where are the Democrats now? That's my point. That's my point. That it's, and where are the Liberal Democrats now? If you're in the centre, the electorate will... If you're in the centre, you govern in... Sorry, you... Camp, you're always campaigning. You know that line: you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. You know now what I mean by that is that when you're campaigning and nobody and you can appeal to both people who lean left and lean right, and then when you have to choose, when you have to be kingmaker, you have to lean one way or the other, and the people who want you to lean the other way get um get upset with you. I so it's much harder as a as a balance of power party in the centre than on the on the other side of your party. Right. Okay. Uh, now, now, one thing I think I would is worth thinking about, and this is very left field. It happened in South Australia, which is that I don't think it would be a stupid idea at all for, and it, it just can't be done. I don't think. I don't think they'd have the the uh, smarts for it, but. I don't think it would be a dumb idea at all for Albanese to ask one of the Teals to be a minister in his government, that kind of thing. And it's not a coalition. It's just uh, picking up, you know, somebody like Monique Ryan as Minister for Health, for instance. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so, you know, the, I think they should really get creative. And, and the point about doing that is that that's a very centrist gesture for the government, for the Labor government to make. That makes a point. Unfortunately, their backbench would be terribly upset about that because their backbench is full of people who got into the job that they've got because they like the idea of more power rather than less. Right, okay, okay, okay. So so what lessons can we draw from the Hawke Howard comparison to the um, government? Well, I think the lesson is that... Governing from the centre is the only way to survive in Australian politics. That's true of Hawke and Howard. They both govern from the centre. But governing to persuade people around a, a kind of consensus idea is a way to govern which builds momentum as more and more people 
see how they and their operation fit into a growing picture which increases in coherence. That's the story of economic reform and globalization that you talked about. And if you govern by thinking to yourself, which we've, we've actually now said goodbye to a government that basically did nothing else but to think about how they could govern to pose problems for their opposition, to wedge their opposition. And if you do that for any length of time, and that's what had happened by the end of the Howard government, you turn into a farce. You, 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 you know, within three months, you're doing the opposite of what you did three months ago because you're sort of trying to trap your opposition into this or that. If you remember with John Howard for a while, he said nuclear power would be a good idea in Australia, which I happen to think is true, but he only did it because he was trying to wedge his opposition and he ended up wedging himself uh, because the, the opposition were able to turn that against him. Uh, so... So governing from the centre, governing progressively, I don't mean that in by I don't mean by that left of centre. I mean in an unfolding vision of things improving, that's I think how you can govern well and stick around for quite a long time. Well, Nicholas Green, uh, those are very, very profound thoughts, and uh, I'm sure it gives us lots to think about. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, Elon Musk has threatened to walk away from his $44 billion acquisition of Twitter, accusing the social media company of failing to provide enough information about fake accounts. Musk, who told executives that he planned to cut 10% of Tesla's workforce because he had a super bad feeling about the economy, has repeatedly criticised Twitter's claim that less than 5% of its daily active users are bots, warning last month that his takeover cannot move forward unless a platform provides proof. In a letter to Twitter's chief legal officer that was disclosed in a regulatory filing on Monday, Musk's lawyers wrote that the Tesla chief believed that the company had refused to provide the information that he has repeatedly requested since May the 9th. Twitter insisted it would hold Musk to the original merger agreement, saying it would continue to cooperatively share information with the billionaire to consummate the transaction in accordance with the terms of the merger agreement. A spokesman added that the company intended to close the transaction and enforce a merger agreement at the agreed price and terms. Since Musk and Twitter announced a deal in April, shares in Tesla have fallen sharply, along with those in other high-growth tech companies. Analysts have noted that Musk, because of the market turmoil, may seek an excuse to cut the transaction price or walk away from the deal. Economist Paul Krugman says Musk is trying to back out of his deal to buy Twitter, but he probably can't without paying billions of damages. Perhaps that's why he's thinking about zooming off to Mars. And the World Bank warned on Tuesday that the global economy faces a risk of dreaded stagflation, with this combination of high inflation and low growth tipping some countries into recession. The war in Ukraine, lockdowns in China, supply chain disruptions and the risk of stagflation are hammering growth. For many countries, recession will be hard to avoid, said World Bank President David Melpass. In its updated Global Economic Prospects report, the World Bank slashed its forecast for global growth this year to 2.9%, down from the 4.1% forecast published in January. The World Bank said most of the downgrade is attributed to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which it had not accounted for in its previous forecast. The international body said it expects essentially no rebound next year, projecting only 3% growth for the world in 2023. The report pointed to the persistence of high energy and food prices, combined with higher interest rates from central banks around the world, for the gloomier outlook. And the Reserve Bank has damaged its credibility by miscalculating the inflationary effects of the pandemic, acting too slowly to tame rising prices and poorly communicating its intentions to the market, according to a former RBA senior economist. Jeremy Lawson, chief economist for the UK-based fund manager ABRDN, 
which last year rebranded from Standard Life Aberdeen, where he also heads its research institute, worked at the RBA for seven years until 2008. The RBA, which had said there would be no rate rises until 2024, has echoed errors from other central banks around the world, notably the Federal Reserve, in waiting too long to temper swiftly rising prices, he said. Mr Lawson said the RBA should move aggressively to tame the swift increase in consumer prices in the same vein as central banks in the US, Canada and New Zealand, which have each increased rates by 50 basis points this year. He thinks the Australian cash rate will peak at 2.75% in the current hiking cycle, a forecast roughly in line with three of the four major banks. And the Reserve Bank of Australia continued its hawkish pivot on Tuesday by lifting the cash rate from 0.35% to a surprise 0.85% in a move that blindsided most economists. And with the RBA saying inflation is growing faster than expected, it is tipped to lift the cash rate to 1.35% in July, using back-to-back 0.5 percentage point rate rises in an effort to curb it. The 0.50% rise is the biggest one-month increase since February 2000. RBA Governor Philip Lowe said that said the double business-as-usual 50 basis point increase was needed due to the resilience of the local economy and growing inflation from spiking energy prices. In early May, the RBA lifted Australia's official cash rate by 25 basis points to 0.35% from 0.1%. It marked the first rate rise in 11 years since November 2010. Some economists forecast that the cash rate could hit 2.5% by the end of next year. In announcing the decision, Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe said the rise was in response to the fact that inflation in Australia has increased significantly. Annual inflation increased to 5.1% in the March quarter, driven by higher housing construction costs and fuel prices. Last month, Lowe said cost of living pressures would continue to grow in the coming months and inflation was expected to reach 6%. Inflation is tipped to rise to above the 6% forecast only a month ago, probably to about 7% due to a further jump in the oil price. But on Tuesday, he said inflation was now expected to increase further before declining back towards the bank's target 2-3% to range next year. He said higher prices for electricity and gas and recent increases in petrol prices mean that, in the near term, inflation is likely to be higher than expected a month ago. The futures market has a 3.5% rate priced in by mid-2023. That's 315 basis points from where we are now. A key uncertainty for both the economy and monetary policy is how long this inflationary shock persists. Given it's tied directly to both a global pandemic and a war, it's safe to say nobody knows the answer to that. Another uncertainty is how sensitive inflation will be to the RBA rate hikes. Given it's a unique case, we can expect inflation to be less sensitive than previous inflationary spikes. The entire economic outlook is connected to these uncertainties. What we do know is that the ability of households and businesses to weather the inflationary storm declines the longer it lasts. Budgets will gradually tighten and savings will deplete. And if it lasts too long, then we tip over into recession. And the finance sector union yesterday signalled it will pursue the highest pay claims at major banks in more than a decade after lodging an official call for annual pay rises of 6% at Westpac. A new round of enterprise talks between the union and Westpac kicked off in Sydney last week that will affect the incomes and working conditions of around 30,000 staff. The Westpac talks are the opening instalment in a hectic season of industrial engagement in the banking sector that also includes a new bargaining round covering workers at the National Australia Bank. FSU National Secretary Julia Engrisano confirmed in an interview that the union would also be seeking minimum pay rise of 6% for NAB staff. Angrisano said the bargaining rounds with Westpac and NAB were the most important decades given they were set in an environment marked by price inflation and uncertain working conditions caused by the pandemic. 
and big electricity generators have warned manufacturers will struggle to stay afloat as the energy crisis escalates and gas producers move to boost supply. Wholesale electricity prices at least doubled in most states in the first quarter of 2022 and quadrupled in Queensland amid high demand and full fuel prices, while gas markets also hit a record because of the Ukraine conflict. Snowy Hydro is expanding its namesake hydro scheme and building a new gas plant to provide more backup power for the grid. The reality is this is a new norm and without transmission and more firming capacity in the system, we're in trouble, Snowy Chick Broad said. And Origin Energy has predicted small electricity retailers face collapse due to soaring wholesale energy prices and has called on governments to prioritise coal supply for power stations to ease a growing energy crisis. Australia's largest electricity operators said smaller retailers face having to shut down. The wholesale price of electricity is regularly topping $400 a megawatt hour across the main states in the national electricity market, more than five times last year's prices, while spot gas on the east coast has jumped to $50 a gigajoule from less than $10 a gigajoule at the start of the year. The huge price jumps have triggered broader concern that smaller Australian electricity operators could follow the fate of UK retailers where nearly 30 energy companies have collapsed after failing to hedge against rising wholesale costs. The hit to households is also now becoming clearer after, with power bills rising by up to hundreds of dollars for some customers after the national regulator announced increases of up to 18% on standing offers from July the 1st, sparked by surging fuel costs and coal plant breakdowns hiking wholesale prices. Origin also repeated a call for both government and industry action to help resuscitate the ailing coal sector, with a string of major generators broken down or under maintenance, resulting in coal output operating at five-year lows. And losses through investment scams have risen sharply so far this year, and cryptocurrencies are involved in the majority of the losses. The Australian Competition Consumer Commission has released the latest scam data showing Australians lost $205 million to scammers over the four months to the end of April. The majority of losses were to investment scams, with $158 million loss. That's a threefold increase over the same period last year. Of the $158 million, $113 million involved crypto investments, and cryptocurrency was the most common payment method for all investment scams. ACCC Deputy Chair Delia Ricard said in a statement that the numbers underestimate the true extent of losses. The data is largely based on people reporting their experience of ScamWatch, and the ACCC's research shows that only a small proportion of people report their losses. And transgender activists have welcomed ANZ Bank's introduction of paid gender affirmation leave and call for it to be legislated as an option for all workers. ANZ will offer six weeks of paid leave and up to 12 months of unpaid leave for staff to undergo gender-reforming processes such as surgery and legally changing their name and gender. It follows Coles last month announcing up to 10 days of paid gender affirmation leave for employees. And NotCo, a plant-based food and built company backed by shareholders including Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, tennis star Roger Federer and Formula One champion Lewis Hamilton, aims to replicate in Australia the the fast growth it has achieved in the United States. Not Milk is made by Notco. Chief Executive Matthias Muchnik said sales globally had tripled in the past 12 months after an expansion from its home base in South America with the group's plant-based milk, burgers and chicken product in more than 10,000 stores in North America. Mr Muchnik said the early momentum from the group's Not Milk product in Woolworths to 970 supermarkets in Australia is promising and the company has also been working hard to woo Australia's baristas in coffee shops and cafes. He said while milk substitutes were a competitive category, he believed Notco had perfected a recipe for a plant-based milk which tasted like milk from dairy cows. The company established in Santiago in Chile six years ago uses local manufacturing partners in the countries in which it operates but is importing the Not Milk and Not Burger range for now in Australia. That will change once early sales targets are hit. 
Notco is competing against a range of other plant-based food companies when it comes to burgers and chicken nuggets. One of the largest is V2 Food, the plant-based meat company, backed by rich lister Jack Cowan, who built his fortune from the Hungry Jack's fast food burger chain. And nearly $8 billion have been wiped from the market value of Australia's largest media companies since the beginning of the year, as rising interest rates and fears of a recession spook investors. The index for Australia's ASX-listed media and marketing companies is down 32.6% for the year to date. These media and marketing stocks have performed far worse than the wider ASX All Ordinaries. That's only down 7.7% for the year to date. Companies such as Nine Entertainment Co, Seven West Media and Southern Cross Asterio have benefited from a buoyant advertising market for the last 18 months, even during the COVID-19 pandemic. But media analysts are warning the honeymoon period would be, soon, would be over as runaway inflation fuels concerns of sharply higher interest rates. Investment bank Macquarie downgraded its view on the sector to underweight last week over concerns Australia's media companies would not be able to weather the volatile market conditions or a potential recession. That is despite several companies such as Nine investing in subscription products which are considered less vulnerable to swings in the economy than advertising. Shares in major television, publishing and radio billboard advertising companies have fallen between 19% and 44% since January compared to a fall of 4.6% for the benchmark ASX 200. Nine Entertainment Co., which owns television, radio, publishing and streaming assets, has shared $1.4 billion in value this year. Broadcaster Seven West Media has lost more than $500 million in value so far this year while radio company Here, There and Everywhere has lost $188 million. These figures contribute to $7.7 billion in value torched from television, radio, publishing sector this year. About $1 billion of the decline for nine can be attributed to a fall in the value of real estate listings portal Domain, which has shed $1.6 billion in value. Nine owns 65% of the business. Shares in Rupert Murdoch's News Corp, which owns global and local media assets, are down 23% since the start of the year, shedding $5.1 billion in value. The company owns 61.1% of real estate listings portal, REA Group, Domain's main rival, which has lost $8.1 billion of its market value. And the Australian Securities Investments Commission is investigating how a property investment firm that collapsed, owing $124 million, had no income-generating assets, no auditor, and was effectively insolvent since its inception. Administrators for Melbourne and Brisbane-based Remy Capital Group told the creditors' meeting on Monday the company raised millions of dollars from hundreds of investors over five years for property development, promising them guaranteed quarterly returns on a 12-month term. But the group collapsed last month, owing $62 million to 433 investors, as well as $30 million in related to entity loans, $22 million in secured debts, and an estimated $6 million to the Australian Taxation Office, and millions more to staff and landlords. Administrator Chris Baskerville of Jewish Sutherland told investors at the creditors' meeting that preliminary investigations estimated only 20-30% of investors' money was actually deployed to buy property. About 69 cents of each dollar invested appeared to go into operations expenses and another 11 cents to commissions and risk fees, he said. The company then needed to borrow from lenders at high rates to make up the rest of the money to purchase the properties. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to leading artificial AI expert Dr Katrina Wallace about the growth of AI in business and in the workplace. And I'll be talking to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter about the RBA, interest rates and inflation. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you talking business next week. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 